Welcome to the Rise and Resilience of Populism in Eastern Europe, a podcast which popularizes academic research on contemporary European populism. I'm Tsveta Petrova, a lecturer in the Political Science Department at Columbia University. The series is hosted by the European Institute at Columbia and made possible with the support of the Erasmus Plus program of the European Union. The European Commission's support for this series, however, does not constitute an endorsement of its contents, which reflect the views of the interviewer and interviewee alone. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Milada Vahudova, who is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She specializes in European politics. Her book, Europe Undivided, Democracy, Leverage and Integration After Communism, published by Oxford University Press, was awarded the Steinrocken Prize for Comparative Social Science Research. Professor Vehudova's recent work examines the strengthening of ethnopopulism as well as democratic backsliding in the European Union. She's also part of the core team of the Chapel Hill Expert Survey on the positions of political parties across Europe. It is her work on party systems and ethnopopulism that I would like to discuss today. Good day, Dr. Vehudova. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Parties such as law and justice in Poland and Fidesz in Hungary have been defined as populist, nationalist, conservative, far-right, to mention a few of the most widely used labels. You prefer to identify them as ethnopopulist. Could you introduce this concept and explain why you prefer it? This comes to the heart of understanding why um, ethnopopulist parties, when they are elected, tend to behave quite differently than the ethnic nationalist parties that we studied in the 1990s across the region. My colleague at the CEU, Professor Aaron Jenny, was the first to think about whether in, the, in Europe today, what we're actually seeing is the rise of ethnopopulist parties. The first key difference is that when these parties are appealing to voters, the kind of enemies that they are depicting for the voters are really quite different. So in the, for ethnic nationalists, it was just about always adjoining nations that took center stage in terms of being the, the other that was a threat to the nation. Sometimes, mm -hmm. of course, ethnic minorities that would be intermingled from adjoining nations. Whereas today, Viktor Orban, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, but also in Western Europe, Salvini in Italy, Le Pen in France, are much more likely to point to a kind of existential civilizational threat that's much broader, mm -hmm. including cosmopolitan European elites, George Soros, and very central to this is refugees and Islam. So Muslim refugees, dark-skinned refugees, and the idea that Islam poses a cultural and civilizational threat to European values, to European Christianity. So we have a shift from an attempt or an ambition to restructure the regional order um, to a much more civilizational threat in which external and internal enemies conspire to create a threat to the nation. Mm -hmm. But there are a couple other differences too. Mm -hmm. uh, another difference is that when we think about how they appeal to voters, they are not right wing in the sense that we are used to far right parties having a kind of either blurred position as many of my colleagues have written about or a kind of pro-market, especially several decades ago, position. 
position. Now, a lot of these parties are actually taking left positions on mm -hmm. social policy, on the welfare state, although often with a, with a sort of chauvinistic twist, right? A strong mm -hmm. welfare state only for authentic people, only people who belong here, only for the French, only for the Hungarians. So mm -hmm. it is much more comfortable and easy for them to, to get along, but not just get along, but learn from one another, meet together and help each other out. They're no longer putting each other, you know, mm -hmm. as the threat to the people. And I think that this is important because it helps us understand how they've become more powerful. Thank you. Um, stepping back, you have written a lot about the evolution of party systems and party competition in Europe. And of course, this is the context and the environment in which populist parties um, develop. What has this evolution been and how has it contributed to the rise of ethno-populist parties? That is such a good question and, and a, a complicated one. Some of it comes back to the learning in that we see Viktor Orban, for example, being like a mentor for other mm -hmm. populist parties. But a lot of it comes down to the dynamics of party competition, that these parties are making the choice. They're finding out they're making the choice. It's an iterated game to focus all of the competition on the cultural axis as opposed to the economic one. And mm -hmm. here, you know, Victor Orban's Hungary almost leads the way already before, before anything happened. And that in Hungary, we see from 1990 that all of the competition is on the cultural identity axis. These mm -hmm. Hungarian parties are almost indistinguishable on the traditional economic left-right axis. We see over the last two decades, more and more party systems. If you look at like what parties are competing about in the run up to the election, shifting from questions of economic policy to more and more questions of identity, culture. And I think this has really benefited these kinds of parties. While you can always have a, a heated discussion about economic redistribution and who deserves what, when you layer that with the sense that there are culturally harmful outsiders who are trying to come and take something away from you. Mm. And this is sort of the, the heart of the ethno-populist appeal, saying, look, we're here to, to protect you, the deserving people, from these outside forces, such as European institutions, cosmopolitan liberal elites, but also from marginalized groups in society. And, and they put opposition parties in that as well. And that kind of us versus them becomes the dominant narrative and any kind of economic arguments are sort of subsumed under that. All of this creates justification for concentrating power. Hmm. People are under threat. We are the only ones who can protect you. But in order to protect you and in order to finally push through things that are in your interest, we have to concentrate power in our hands and we have to eliminate the independent judiciary. We have to get our people in there so that they can do the right thing. We have to control the information environment so that we can make sure that these terrible untruths are not being told. Although to tell you the truth, I also think there's a fair amount of um, luck involved. I mean, if you look at Viktor Orban, yes, he had a very strong basis from which to work. We can see how important identity issues were in elections, you know, prior to 2010. But he also has a system where it's very easy to amend the constitution. 
uh, an electoral system where it's very easy to, to get a super majority in the parliament. So um, basically the rules of the game that were written in the 90s in terms of how easy it is to win the constitution, how easy it is to get a super majority played into his hands very mm-hmm. much. Um, and I also think the fact that he was a politician who'd been around since 1989, he had been planning in a very kind of methodical way how he was mm-hmm. going to do, take some of these steps. What's so important though is to realize in Hungary is that even you know in his best election, he's not going getting a majority of Hungarians. And with every successive election, the playing field is so warped mm. that election results, even if votes are counted freely and fairly on election day, this is not a fair election. This is not a liberal democracy. The opposition had five minutes on state television. Almost all independent media has been eliminated. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so that needs to kind of, we need to think about how that plays into Orban's durability. I'm curious how you think about the broader impact of ethnopopulism on democracy in the region and to what extent Eastern Europe is distinctive within Europe. I think what's striking about these ethnopopulist leaders is that they are so skilled at being able to justify the concentration of power. Mm. And we see that not just in post-communist Europe, but look at Boris Johnson in Mm. the UK. What he did to the Tory party, purged it of moderates, forced this kind of um, top-down, you must uh, comply in terms of Brexit, in terms of the EU, in terms of cultural issues. And then on top of that, starts concentrating power and breaking down some of the checks and balances. Now, of course, in... Western democracies, the guardrails are much stronger. And I Mm -hmm. think that that is a big difference that we see in in post-communist Europe, these justifications for concentration of power and then the kind of brazen moves to to do it are met with less resistance. Mm -hmm. Um, But if Salvini was to get a majority or a super majority in the Italian parliament, I would expect him to, to enact the same kinds of um, backsliding policies as Orban has in Hungary. So Eastern Europe then is distinctive in the weakness of the guardrails. What about left versus right populism? So there is a very, in my mind, a very important distinction between left and right populism, you know, and it comes down to who are the people. Kasmuda mm-hmm. and others have written about this. For left-wing populists, so let's think of Syriza or Bernie Sanders, The people are the 99% or the 95% or sort of ordinary working people. And the argument is the establishment elites have been putting, you know, have been governing in a way that is not in your interest. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they're very inclusive in who they put among the people. Syriza, for example, very openly sort of embraces migrants and undocumented workers in in Greece as part of the people who deserve protection. Ethnopopulists define the people in a cultural way. Of course, it's layered in nationalism, but the people is also defined in a kind of broader way, right? A culture, European culture, European civilization. And what's really important to, to note is that to the extent that left populists have governed in Europe, 
they have tended to be moderated by government. So Syriza was a very left populist, radical kind of party, but once in power, behaved in a very, um, you know, moved to the center in terms of its view of the EU, in terms of how it implemented economic policy. Same is true for Podemos in Spain. So we, we, you know, in theory, we know that left populists can also come to power power and concentrate power and engage in backsliding. We've seen it in Latin America, but mm -hmm. we don't have a case of that in Europe. In fact, what we have is more the moderation of these parties as they become governing parties. Whereas ethno-populist parties, when they become governing parties, as they have in Hungary, in Poland, but also at least briefly in Austria, in Italy, um, they do not moderate. We do not see moderation. Salvini today does not is not a more moderate politician. When you think about the impact of those ethnopopulists on democracy in the long term, what do you see as their biggest impact? Is it is it that they have dismantled some of these checks and balances and, and rights? Or is it rather that they have so restructured political competition that even in, in years to come, they make it difficult for liberal parties to become successful? That is such a good question. Uh, I think the first one is one that many scholars have pointed to, and that is creating so much distrust in, mm. in the state institutions, in the political process. Of course, I'm I'm in the United States where that is a tremendous problem. Um, and I think it's linked to painting the opposition as an enemy of the people, an enemy of the state, a kind of existential threat so that mm -hmm. they convince their voters that, you know, no matter what, it's much better for them to be in power than any opposition parties who are a threat to the nation, a threat to the people, a threat to even sort of the territorial existence. Uh, and that then gives them a carte blanche to do whatever they want because their voters are primed to think, well, you know, our, if, if they're in power, our guys need to have all the power to be able to fight these 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 threats. Where do you see pockets of resistance? Um, where could we look for uh, hope in terms of bringing democracy back to the region? Well, I think that we see a lot of hope in mobilization. So there are, mm. are so many people who have mobilized. Mm. I, I, I do reject this idea that post-communist EU members are all backsliding. Mm. I think there's a lot of variation. I think there's a lot of variation and there's also backsliding in Western Europe in different ways and different, mm -hmm. countries, different times. Mm -hmm. So the narrative that, you know, post-communist Eastern Europe, at least the EU members have rejected liberalism or moving towards illiberal democracy or authoritarian rule as a group, I reject that. I also think that democratic participation in these countries is now very high. Um, at least some of them. We see tens of thousands of people protesting and mobilizing the largest mobilization since 1989. And all of this is democratic participation. So yeah. if we go back to our sort of theories of what makes a robust democracy, we may have shortcomings 
on one side, uh, but we're seeing a surge in participation. The Czech elections are certainly wonderful news. You know, a yeah. lot of scholars yeah. were <laughs> hesitant to put Anno and Andrei Babish in the same basket of ethnopopulist backsliders as Peace and Fidesz. But many of the ways in which he was concentrating power in the Czech Republic, although maybe a little bit different, were still were very destructive for um, political transparency, accountability for institutions that were, were working more or less to support state capacity now being directed to, to work towards enriching an oligarch and his friends. Let me ask you about Anno, because again, oftentimes there is a debate whether Anno is indeed populist in the way that uh, Fidesz and Law and Justice are. I think many would agree that Anno is a force of illiberalism. Um, so there's a lot of concentration, economic concentration, media concentration, even political concentration. But do you think that Babish has in a way um, labeled the opposition as being illegitimate in a way that um, Orban has. So while um, Anno has an anti-establishment rhetoric, has that anti-establishment rhetoric been equally moralist and monist to let's say Orban's or Kaczynski's? That's an interesting way to look at it. I think it has, I think Anno's rhetoric was milder in part also because it ruled in coalition right so it was ruling with some of the mainstream established parties it's interesting right because in a, in in these countries the anti-eu is in the government and the pro-eu is among the protesters which is opposite mm -hmm. of the western europe and babish was certainly very very um dismissive of all of the protesters of the movement million Felix mm -hmm. for democracy in that kind of scathing way. But yes, I agree that he's more of a player in the party system because he had to be. Mm -hmm. Babish was, you know, just so good at doing the, even though I'm an incredibly wealthy oligarch, I am a man of the people. I don't know how he does that. I don't know how Boris Johnson does it. Uh, it's really incredible, but I think he takes the cake. Now, whether we put him in that category with, with Fidesz and Peace, uh, he kind of answered that question for us mm. in the sense that he so often complimented Orban. He said, I wish we could do here what Orban is, is doing in Hungary. And in the last minute of the, of the election campaign, he actually invited Orban to come campaign with him in the Czech Republic. And I think that was a mistake mm. um, because I, I did, that certainly didn't, didn't suddenly help him in the polls. The other thing that's interesting about Babish is that he's, he's dealing with other far right parties and hasn't mm. been able to consume them the way that Orban has in Hungary. Mm. So mm. he has to try to attract their voters. He has to try to um, potentially leave open the possibility of governing with them. Uh, and that strategy has also, I think, backfired, backfired for him. In, in mm -hmm. mm. Thinking again about the distinctiveness of the Czech case and, and coming right after our discussion on mobilization, do we see such pro 
ethno-populist mobilization at the civic level in the Czech Republic in defense of Babish and Anno? No, we don't. I mean, not, I would say not at the same scale. He tried to mm-hmm. um, create an actual more of a movement, but he was never especially successful at, at kind of getting people into the street. And mm-hmm. it does go back to the problem that some of the more motivated voters are culturally to the far right of him. So the SPD is an openly white supremacist uh, extreme right party. I think though that it's what Babish did very well is activate this urban versus rural cleavage. Mm. This mm. feeling among voters in rural areas, which are basically outside of Prague, that they are not sort of heard, that they are looked down upon, that the urban educated elites see them as of a lesser status. And this, I think, has led, I, you know, I don't know if you call it mobilization, but certainly a sort of a strong support for his party in rural areas of the Czech Republic and small towns, villages. Uh, the idea that he's sort of this every man that stands up against the Prague elite. They all manage to create this cast of enemies that is transnational. Mm. And that is very much like, you know, you've been, you are not part of these, not just urban processes, but transnational processes related to European integration, related to these cosmopolitan European elites. And they're doing a, they all have a project which isn't making your life better. And not only that, they're looking down at you because they're, you know, they see you as uneducated and backward. While Babish has been milder at those kinds of statements, he still makes them. And he he kind of, one thing he did with the refugees, which was so interesting, was that he discussed how the Czech worker was so diligent, so mm-hmm. hardworking, so honorable in his mm-hmm. work, um, and should be celebrated for this. And that you don't want these people coming in who are going to be lazy, who aren't going to work. And of course, he also talked about the Roma minority in those yeah. ways, because I can see how that would appeal to Czechs saying, yes, look at our advanced industrialized countries built on the backs of hardworking mm-hmm. people like me. Someone's going to come and live off of us unfairly. So that I think was very important. You discussed how ethno-populists oftentimes use crisis as opportunities to shore up support. And Eastern Europe and Europe and the world more broadly is now in the midst of a crisis, a security crisis, an inflection point in the entire uh, post-Cold War liberal order. So I would love your thoughts on how the war in Ukraine has changed is changing, will change the political landscape in Europe, um, particularly in terms of impact on ethno-populist parties? Well, the first I will say is that one of the hallmarks of these ethno-populist parties that I have studied is just how flexible they are. Uh, So in terms of being able to react to current events in order, in terms of being able to add and subtract people from or groups from from the culturally harmful category that the people must be protected from 
very kind of um, that flexibility really serves them well in these crises, right? Orban was so ready in 2015 to, to, to take advantage of the refugee crisis. And so with the war in Ukraine, Putin having been revealed, but mm -hmm. to all what many of us knew of being, you know, truly someone who was ready to destroy a country to commit horrendous war crimes, that this would send far right and ethno-populist parties who have been so friendly with Putin kind of scrambling. Yeah. They would change position. They would distance themselves from the Kremlin, from the Putin regime. And we certainly saw some of that. There was a beautiful moment when Salvini shows up on the Polish border ready to get some photo ops of how he's helping refugees and the local Polish mayor showed up with a t-shirt of him, you know, shaking hands with Putin and told him to go away. Uh, we did see that, but we also see that at least in France and, and certainly in Hungary, we ethnopopulist parties are able to come up with a message that actually benefits them as a result of the war in Ukraine. Hmm. So, so. so Viktor Orban in Hungary, he essentially said to the voters, right, if you vote for me, you are voting for calm, friendly relations with Putin with the Kremlin. So this means you're voting for peace. And you are also voting for a stable, secure economy with energy deliveries from Russia. Uh, if you vote for the opposition, you're voting for war, you're voting for conflict with the Kremlin, economic instability, and an end to Hungary's low energy prices. And it was actually brilliant. I think it worked, at least for some voters. You know, voters don't like instability and insecurity. And he was able to build on his image of having offered Hungarians this stable, economically prosperous environment. Never mind that much, some of that comes directly from the European Union, from European Union transfers and so forth. Um, in other countries though, I do think that there will be a durable move away from sponsorship by the Kremlin. Mm. So I do think that in the, we will be seeing a shift of parties distancing themselves rhetorically from the Kremlin and also having fewer resources directed at them from Moscow. I think that the change in the information environment is going to matter. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to matter because a lot of those platforms that have been pumping out this disinformation that helps the, you know, ethnopopulists like Vic, like Zaman, uh, when Miller Zaman won the Czech presidency, yeah. a Putin tool, it was so clear how yeah. much Russians had helped create that information environment. But so France is worrying, right? Because in France now, some some journalists and others are saying that uh, Le Pen has been able to say to French voters, well, there's Emmanuel Macron on the international stage failing to convince Putin to end the war and not paying enough attention to France, to yeah. French problems. In times of crisis, there's a, there's a, there's the possibility that you know people are turning inward and they're worried and they just want to yeah. be told that they're going to be okay that their life's not going to change yeah so in a way it's similar to Orban where the war has allowed populists to come back to their redistributive um, appeals 
Okay, so we have some like um, some uh, populists in the Czech Republic who are going to distance themselves or to be much more cautious in terms of accepting support and cooperating with um, Putin in the future. We have some populists um, as Orban or perhaps um, Marine Le Pen as well, who are refocusing and, and doubling down on helping um, the people in terms of the economic impact of the war. What about populists, um, as in Poland, who have been quite belligerent um, or openly aggressive or distrustful of Russia? Mm -hmm. Yeah, now this is a fascinating um, parting of ways. I mean, the, the Law and Justice Party in Poland and Fidesz in Hungary have always had very, very different rhetoric when it came to Putin and yeah. Russia always yeah. publicly very different. The polls did not like hearing, you know, scholars like me who would say, but actually, you know, the Law and Justice Party by, by attacking the European Union, by trying to decouple it from liberal democracy, by undermining it in different ways is actually very much doing the work of Vladimir Putin. This is what Putin wants. He wants a weak and divided Europe. Mm -hmm. So today you see the Law and Justice Party seizing the opportunity of, you, of, of the war in Ukraine to rebrand itself as fighting for European values. Mm -hmm. And what can I say? You know, the situation in Ukraine is so urgent that every bit of help that Poland yeah. gives to the Ukrainians now is to be celebrated. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that Law and Justice has changed as a, as a party that, you know, has these very, very objectionable views about the, the culturally harmful groups in Poland and how it restricts and, and vilifies them. It does not, right? And so we're in a very strange position right now where clearly Ukraine is much closer to European values, at least as the way it's expressed by its government and state administration than Poland. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Having talked about how populists are responding and adapting to the war in Ukraine, I would love your thoughts on how non-populist politicians are making sense of the situation. Are they now reconsidering how def they define the national interest, um, also in terms of how it would affect ethno-populist parties? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think Germany is a great case to look at because Germany is so consequential at this moment. It is essentially German's leadership is essential for sanctioning Russian gas and oil mm -hmm. because it's the largest economy, because it imports the most and because it's seen it is a leader in Europe. Um, you know, Germany has come a long, long way. You could say amazing, incredible change, a shift towards greater militarization, a shift to sending weapons into a, a conflict zone, canceling Nord Stream 2. But you could also say that Germany at this point has done nothing to harm its own economy. It has been very careful. Yeah. It has these calculations of self-interest in the sense right now, refusing to stop the import of Russian gas and oil, even though it would only be about a 3% inflation for the German economy. Yes, the German economy would slow down. Um, 
So the question is, is this calculation that they're making the right one? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, there is, just as there was in 2015, the worry that if you go down the road of, of um, materially helping Ukraine in a way that hurts the German economy, you will have a further rise of the AF support for the AFD and other far-right parties. On the other hand, the reputational costs for Germany are mounting every day. Yeah. If you read what commentators are writing across Europe, also in Ukraine, Germany is now singled out as yeah. essentially making calculations that are very self-interested. And I think those reputational costs are great. And I think the way that Germany sees itself yeah. as this beacon of liberal values is, is seriously under threat. So mm -hmm. Germany has to reckon with the fact that all this power that the Kremlin has, a good piece of it has come from this. And on top of that, you have the corruption of German elites. You have Gerhard yeah. Schroeder. You have all of these German economic and political elites who benefited tremendously. So Germany is implicated in, in, the, in those ways, in very dark ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Professor Vahudova, thank you for joining me today. It's been a fascinating conversation about ethnopopulism in Europe. Um, we look forward to your future work on this topic. I wanted to flag two really interesting projects. The first one is a book manuscript on political change in post-communist Europe in the context of the similar changes in broader Europe. And the second one is on protest and resistance to ethnopopulism and democratic backsliding um, in post-communist Europe. 